You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Today, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 25. If you do not have a Bible this morning, that's totally fine. There should be a black Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that home with you and let that be a gift from us to you this morning. Again, today we're going to be in chapter or Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 25. And uh, we're just continuing our series through Exodus, Mountain of God, where we're exploring how God is faithful to the Israelites in the wilderness as they travel uh, to see him on the mountain. And so if you have your Bibles and you are there with me, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Again, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 25. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will uh, indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, And the Lord said um, to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of, uh, of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments, and he said to the people, Be ready, for the third day do not go near a woman." On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. 
And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Good morning. My name's Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I just want to say uh, thanks for making us a part of your week. If you if you are uh, if it is your first time here, we're glad that you're here, uh, and hopefully we can get out of here before it hits around a thousand degrees outside, and uh, maybe not sweat on the way to the car, but it's unlikely. So. We're going to continue our work through the book of Exodus this morning, and like Scott said, we've been kind of working through this uh, book this entire year, uh, and this kind of, I guess, mini-series, we, we broke it up into three parts. Your, your Bible doesn't break it up into three parts. We just did that kind of to be helpful, but but this mini-series is called The Mountain of God, and we are in the chapter as they approach the mountain of God. This is Mount Sinai in the scripture. The, the giving of the law happens in chapter number 20, and so we're talking about Right as God is about to give the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses, the preparation for them, for Moses to go up and get the law, that's the chapter that we're in. So uh, before we dive into the scriptures, because we've got a lot of work to do, obviously you saw how much uh, Scott just read, let me pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, we entrust ourselves to you now. Um, Of all the things that we've had this week, and of all that's upcoming, we we need you, and we, we need you now to, to focus our minds and our hearts that we might receive from your word. You've promised, my God, that if there be two or three of us, that, that you would be in the midst of us, and we are so very confident that you're here with us now. And so we do just ask that you'd give us those ears to hear and, and that we would hear from your word and so be changed and challenged, encouraged, comforted, all the things that you know that we need. We ask that you would give those things to us now. And most of all, my God, that we would not refuse the word as you give it to us, but instead we would receive it with gladness. And in so doing, we would gain the blessing that your word has promised us. And so we just, we love and trust you, God, and we ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so for the sake of time, I'm not going to reread fully. We'll kind of go back through the scriptures and and, and we'll pick some of the text to read, but there was a lot of text there, but I just kind of want to recap what has just happened. So the, what the Bible records is that at this point, they've made their way across the Red Sea that God parted for them, and they traveled to the mountain that God had met Moses on in the burning bush, and God had told Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let the people go, and when you bring them back, worship here on this mountain. And so now they've made it back to that mountain, chapter number 19, and they begin to encamp around the mountain, and God comes down and says, I'm, I'm going to show up. I'm going to, you need to prepare, because I'm coming down to meet you, Moses, and not just you, because think about it, up until this time, the people have been hearing from Moses as the mediator. Moses meets with God. Moses speaks with God. Moses is the mediator who speaks to the people on God's behalf. But now God's saying, I'm coming down the mountain, Moses. You need to tell the people to prepare. I'm descending, and I'm going to speak to them myself. And he has a particular line there that says, so that you will be believed forever. <laughs> so that people will believe that you didn't just you know, hallucinate or you know, have some weird experience out into the desert. I'm going to speak to all the people so they'll always know that your, your record is true. And so he's going to 
speak here to the children of Israel. Now, what I want to point out is some of the things that happen in the first eight verses and then kind of the more of the mega theme at the start. So what God does is he lays out this covenant. He says, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, and I did it that I might bring you and bear you on eagles' wings out of the land of Egypt. And then he lays out his covenant. He says, I will be your God. You'll be my people. This is similar language to what Abraham had received. And, you know, you know this is uh, hundreds of years in the making. And then he tells them that I'm going to give you the statutes and the rules, and if you'll be obedient, then you'll be my treasured people among all the nations. So I'll, you know, I'll protect you and guard you and bless you. And the Bible records, and this is really important, that the children of Israel, every one of them says, we will do all that you command. So they agree to the covenant, right? Wholeheartedly, there's not a single person that doesn't say, we agree. Now, of course, you guys know the reason that that's important is because very obviously they did not okay, uh, actually obey the covenant. But we're going to get into that a little bit. So after they agree, God lays out, he's going to descend upon the mountain. Now, a major theme that you see here, and I know all the ladies probably picked up on it pretty quickly, um, is this idea of uh, this great divide, clean and unclean. Throughout the entire Torah, so the first five books of the Bible, and particularly in Exodus and Leviticus, you're going to see this theme of clean and unclean, holy and unholy, God's distinction between himself and the rest of Israel and the rest of the people and why they're making atonement, blood sacrifice, all of these things is to how do you mesh those two together? How can God come and be the God of Israel if they be unclean? How could he touch that which isn't unclean, right? And you see that here in these first 8 to 16 verses, which is he says, I'm going to come down on the mountain, but if someone breaks through and even touches the mountain, they'll be killed. If they break through into my presence, Moses, and try to gaze upon me, they'll be killed. So tell them not to do this. This is protective warning. And then he says some things, and this is why I joked about the ladies, like, don't go near a woman. Now, I wanted to mention this, because before you go, that's sexist, you know? Like, what he's saying there is he lays out these, not ritualistic, but traditions of separating yourself from, let's say, your dirty clothes, cleanse your clothes, your intimacy, sexual intimacy, so pulling back from that, later on you're going to see in Leviticus, fast from food. Is he saying that you should fast from food forever? Is food bad? No, he's, it's separating yourself from that which would make you ritualistically unclean, right? It's basically consecrating is the word you used yourself. Prepare because God's showing up. Okay. Now I want to focus in on that because I think that's a major theme here that we can't just rush by. In 1903, there was a a newspaper article. Some, some attribute this to the New York Times. Some say that it wasn't the New York Times. It's hard to find these, but and uh, I think it was either in October or December. And the, the article basically was an editorial page speaking of human flight. And it talks about how the, the, a bird's wings have been created um, and just, just how majestic it is. And basically there's this line in there that says, it would take about a million to 10 million years and mathematicians pooling their knowledge together for humans to ever fly. And then it says, not that there couldn't be a lot of wise men that should get together and pursue this, but there's a line in there that says, but maybe we should put our efforts into more reasonable things, you know? And the reason that I mention that is because it was a mere 40 or so days later that the Wright brothers flew. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I don't know if that guy got fired, but... You get what I mean? I think that sometimes when we read the Bible, and I need you to listen to me when I say this, 
when, we, when I say something like, there is such a chasm and a distance between us and God because of our sin that no one could ever make up that distance. And that it's not just a physical distance like from, let's say, the earth to the moon or the earth to the sun or galaxies between galaxies, but there's a spiritual distance that is not overcomable in human feet. That through our maybe uniquely American, but nonetheless human minds, we say, well, that's what they said about flight. We kind of equate these two. I, I can make up that distance. Well, who says that there's such a great distance, right? And, and I, I, can't, I can't overemphasize that what the Bible tells us is that it's an, an, it's an unovercomable chasm between us and God. That what happened in the garden was no small thing. It was an eternal thing. It was nothing that human beings could with their machinations, figure out a way to fix that unless God decided to fix what happened in the garden, it was going to remain this way. And the reason that I say that is because what you see in the chapter 19 of Exodus is God telling the children of Israel to do all of these specific limitations around the mountain and cleansing because for him to come down onto the mountain meant that if they were to come into his unadulterated presence without him setting these limits, they would die. This happens, actually, in your Bible, if you've ever read. There's some kind of sad stories, like this guy named Uzzah, who seems like a pretty good guy from what you know, and they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant from one town to the other, and they're pulling it with oxen. The oxen kind of make the cart stumble, and this guy, Uzzah, just tries to catch the Ark of the Covenant because he doesn't want it to fall, and when he touches the Ark, he dies, just because God had said, if you touch this, you're going to die. And this guy's just trying to catch the Ark, and it says in the Bible, David was mad at the Lord for this, like he was trying to do a good thing. And God's rebuking David saying, human beings, don't under, you don't understand. You are other from me. I'm holy. You don't understand my holiness. And when I lay out this command for you, we think that we could just, well, there's exceptions. And the reason for that is because there's always exceptions that we give ourselves, right? And I want to hammer this home because it's impossible to understand what's happening here at Mount Sinai unless you know that there's a great chasm between God and man that God is about to foreshadow his overcoming, and it's no small thing. Now, in the same token, we were created for what he says Israel's going to be here. And so there's a sense that when you hear this, and you don't, you know, we don't probably hear it in the, since it's in some of the old languages, we don't really hear it as maybe you would hear it today, but things like us being God's treasured people, that's something you were created for being a kingdom of priests. You know, you probably didn't grow up like drawing yourself in long robes and saying, that's what I want to be when I grow up. But kingdom of priests simply means that we would be filled with the presence of God for the glory of God and displaying his majesty across the entire globe. Now that's something that's totally different, isn't it? Understanding of a priest. Exercising dominion over creation, causing the earth to be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what we were created for. So for God to speak to Israel in this way and say, this is what you're going to be for me, there's a sense in our soul that should say, yes, that's what's missing. And yet, I don't have to do a survey to know that there's the kind of sense of exile that every human being experiences. And, and, there's, and it happens in two ways. In times of suffering, you experience acute pain that lets you realize that what your experience on earth is not what it should be. 
And then the rest of the time, it's more of a dull ache that can be overcomable by certain things in the world. You can kind of shut that noise out, right? And we all do it in various different ways, some righteous and some unrighteous, but kind of numbing the pain. It's like a, it's an aspirin of sorts, numbing the dull ache. But all of us recognize, whether it's watching the news or experiencing it ourselves, that we are in exile, that all of us are sojourners on the earth and we're not home. And you all kind of understand what I mean by home, right? It can mean something different to all of us, but the sense is the same, which is where you feel like this is right, secure, protected, middle cushion in your couch. I don't know what it is, but you know what I mean. Home. And Eden was home, and we've been exiled from there. In your bones, you know this. You don't even have to be theologically astute. You just intuitively know this. It's why that you can plan the most amazing vacation and someday at some point on that vacation, whether it's really early if you're with your kids or if you're, with, if you're by yourself and everything's fine, that last day, you know, it didn't give you everything you wanted, you know? You know why? Because it's over. Monday's always coming. It's looming, you know? The weekend makes you feel a little bit of hope. Sunday nights kind of start feeling the rumbling. It's like, oh gosh, here we go again. Something's off. As a, as a human race, you have this uh, line, like there's no atheists in foxholes, right? It's like when you come to the edge of death, you do what? We cry out to the heavens. Why is it that we intuitively do this? We look up and cry out in times of tragedy, strife, hardship. Feeling abandoned in your soul. Even if it's not from a loved one, you feel a sense of abandonment spiritually, exile spiritually, the Bible tells us that's because everything was cursed, and that's what you're feeling. And Exodus 19 is God underscoring that uniqueness from heaven to earth, saying, you need to consecrate yourselves because what? Because heaven's coming down to earth. I'm coming down and descending, but if I come down and descend and you haven't made the appropriate measures, it will engulf you. Why? Because he's holy and we're unholy. He's clean, we're unclean. This is the idea, okay? And if you, if you think I'm crazy about that, just read through Leviticus. It's just written throughout. That's why he's giving them these limitations. So much so that he comes back to Moses and says, hey, Moses, make sure you go back and tell him a second time, don't break through. And you know what Moses' response was, right? We heard it. He said, uh, I already told him. And he said, yeah, I know, tell him again. God knows man. He knows us. You read some of the commentators and you say, they say, the reason God told them again is because they had been in Egypt for so long that many of them might want to break through to gaze upon God so they can create a graven image, which he knew would end up killing more than just one of them. So he said, go ahead and kill that guy if he does that, because that's what he's going to, God knows just how wicked our hearts are. Now, the question is, if there is this exile, and I believe the Bible tells us that there is, and it's true, and we all sense it, how do we deal with it? Let me start by saying, how does man deal with it? So from ancient paganism, ancient humankind, you can look this up on Encyclopedia Britannica. You can look up anywhere you want. This is just world history. Mankind began to climb up mountains to, do, to worship the gods. So you have things like Mount El for the Canaanite worship, which was happening at this time, or you may have heard Mount Olympus with the Greeks, right? The Greek god. Zeus is on a mountain. Lightning bolts come down, right? Uh, Mount Kalish for the Hindus and for the Buddhists. Mount Hermon is another one. Or in the scriptures, you always see this mountain theme. Noah's ark rested upon a mountain, Mount Ararat. And what did he do? He built an altar. 
Mount Moriah was where God told him, told Abraham to go up and sacrifice Isaac. Obviously, we see Mount Sinai here, but later you'll see Mount Ebal. Moses says, build an altar unto God here. Mount Gerizim is where the Samaritan people said that they worshiped God. They believed the temple should be there. That's the argument that the woman at the well gets in with Jesus later in John chapter 4. Mount Carmel is where Elijah has the showdown with the prophets of Baal, remember? And God consumes the sacrifice and the prophets of Baal lose. Jesus, of course, gives his longest sermon, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Later, Jesus will get up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he will reveal his deity as Moses and Elijah meet him there. And then, of course, we have the famous prophecy of Jesus returning upon the Mount of Olives. So this is not, nothing new. It's, hugely, it's a huge biblical theme, and it's a, it's a humongous humankind theme. You can go all across the world, and what you'll find in every civilization is they have high places where they would go and worship the gods, the sky gods, whatever. In the Old Testament, you see that God will judge a king's righteousness or unrighteousness often on how he dealt with the, quote, high places that were set up to worship idols. Now, what's the big idea of all this, and why do I even mention it? Well, the big idea is that there was a human intuition that felt its distance from God, whether they were told by their ancestors the story of the garden or not, they felt their exile, and they sought to remedy this through climbing up mountains to get higher, to get closer to him, to meet the distance or close the gap. And they felt like the higher they would get, the closer they'd get to God. That's why monks were often in the mountains, right? And they would try to worship in order to commune because they sensed that they were down on the earth. The lower that you get, the further away you are. That's why you see a lot of the dark stuff. The sorcery does what? They believe in what the Egyptians believed in, which was what? The underworld. Go deeper. Now, the importance of this theme is very simple. There's either works, which you have to climb your way up the mountain to get closer to God, you're even seeing this in the Old Testament to an extent. They're going to have to, Moses is going to have to come on up. But you need to know that God hasn't changed. God here in the Old Testament is giving us a new vision that's not anywhere else in the entire world to this point and has never been replicated. And that is that rather than calling man up higher to close the distance, God is going to descend. He's going to close the gap. He's going to come down on the mountain. And notice here, that they have not done any sacrificial worship yet to cause him to come down. They've done nothing to earn his presence. They've done nothing to call or conjure him down, which is what often would happen, right? You see this with the prophets of Baal. They were slitting their wrists, blood, come down, Baal, and he wouldn't come down. Elijah jokes with them and says, is your God in the restroom? Where is he at? You know, God comes down by his own might, glory, and grace and says, I will descend. Lots of beautiful worship songs. Here's one from, you know, from the Psalm 24 of David. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? You guys remember this? If you didn't know the band Ascend the Hill, this is where they get it, by the way. Do you remember the answer to this that David answers himself? He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not lifted up his soul to vanity and has not sworn deceitfully. If a 90s song didn't just play in your head right now not lift your soul to another, you know? Give us clean hands, pure heart. David, wittingly or unwittingly, is saying, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Nobody. 
Who has clean hands? Who has a pure heart? Who has not lifted his soul to it? Nobody. So what does that mean? Who's going to make up the distance? Who's going to fill the gap? God has to descend. That's the answer. But the reason that I mentioned first, how does man deal with it, is because unless we recognize that our proclivity is to, by our own works, make up the distance ourselves, then we might be operating a lot more in the flesh and never even notice it, even if we're believers today. Whereas that we feel like Galatians chapter 3, even though we began by the Spirit and grace, we are being perfected by the flesh. So what does God do? God comes down to Sinai. His presence falls, the Bible says, in fire and smoke. And I want to make mention of this. What does Sinai mean, actually, in the Hebrew? The etymology is mountain of thorns. Which, if you don't know why that would be significant, God's bringing them to this place to conjure up into their mind the curse, the exile. Genesis 3, what did he say? Man, thorns and thistles all the days of your life, right? If you remember on the cross of Jesus Christ, what kind of crown did they put on his head? They crowned him with thorns, the curse. So God comes down in Exodus and descends, didn't call Moses up first. Instead, he descends on the mountain of thorns, of curse, and then calls Moses up. And this is a foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing God's plan to reverse the curse of man's exile because of sin. And he's going to make a mighty covenant with Israel of salvation and redemption foreshadowing when Christ will descend. And I have to make this note. God must descend because you and I cannot ascend. That's key. If you remember the Tower of Babel, it doesn't matter if you're trying to ascend so that you can just commune with God and make yourself right with him, or Tower of Babel, you're trying to ascend so that you can make war with God again. Either way, you can't ascend to the heights. Because remember, it's not only a physical distance, it's a spiritual distance we're not going to overcome. The Bible records in Exodus 19, there's a sounding of a trumpet. And this trumpet keeps getting louder and louder and louder as God descends on the mountain. Now, this would have been very familiar with the Israelites. The trumpet's a sound of war. Now, you've got to be thinking, if God's showing up, they're seeing clouds of fire and smoke, and here comes a trumpet, you're terrified, probably, because the sound of war. Is he coming to make war with his mighty angels, the presence of God himself? And yet, the war that God is announcing that he's coming to make is not against Israel, but against the enemies of Israel, namely Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. That's what the war cry is. Now, this will be ultimately fulfilled later, but this is a breakthrough of heaven to earth. God's descending down, and then he gives them the warning that they should not break through lest they die. Now, I want you guys to remember where we've been so far. We've been through 18 chapters, and God's continuing some similar themes here. One of those is he's making a statement to all the nations that he's the one true God over all of the other gods, all the other pagan gods of Egypt. Every nation would have their high places. Egypt had their underworld, but the Lord chose the mountain of thorns to descend to say he is the Lord, as he quotes here in Exodus 19, all the earth is mine. That's what he says to Israel. You'll be my treasured people, but all the earth is mine. This is a foreshadowing. He's saying, I not only am going to save Israel, I want it all. I want all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues to be back with me again. That's my plan. But I'm going to start with you. That's what he's saying here. I'm going to start with you, Israel. But remember, all the earth is mine. 
So that's why he comes back to the curse, Genesis 3, and he doesn't do something to hearken back to Abraham, Genesis 12. He hearkens back to the very beginning to remind Israel, although I'm saving you first, chronologically, this is about the whole earth being redeemed. And then, of course, hopefully you guys all pick up on this as a big foreshadowing of the major descent, which is the incarnation of Christ. We celebrate it every Christmas. If no amount of sacrifice can conjure God from his throne, that means that unless he desires to exit his throne himself, we are hopeless. Once again, to bring you back to some songs you may have listened to, you know, the how many kings step down from their throne song, right? This is that. Jesus decides to exit the throne of heaven and descend upon the earth. So God does this at Sinai, but it's pointing to what most profoundly would happen in Bethlehem when Jesus descends into the manger, right? Knowing that we couldn't overcome our sin on our own, that we can't ascend, Christ descends. That's the idea. Now, what happens here is when God descends on Sinai, he says, Moses, come up to me. Now, I want you guys to think about what happens with Christ. When the Lord Jesus descends to the earth, he then begins to teach, calling us up to himself. So let's put these two things together, because I want you guys to remember what's happening in 19 is inextricably linked to 20. What's happening in preparation for the law is later going to happen in Christ in preparation for what? The inauguration of the kingdom. So let's work through this. When God descends on Sinai, the law is dispensed in the next chapter. He gives them the law. It's a calling of Israel higher, above their base desires, above what the other nations would do. It's a calling them of a higher standard of living. No other place had been given this. This is what makes Israel unique, is that they have a law from God. Like a beacon on a hill, Israel is called to be a light to the world. That's what happens on Sinai. Now fast forward to Christ as he descends to the earth, and he says, listen, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, it is not my purpose to abolish the law, no, but to fulfill it, Jesus says. And then he goes on to talk about how his kingdom life will be, and he goes on to pour out his spirit and says, this is the fulfillment of God writing his law on your hearts. Acts chapter 2, and thus causing us to rise above and conquer sin, not by our works, but by faith in him. So whereas the Old Testament says, hey, this is the law, be obedient to the law and you'll rise above. The new covenant says Christ will die, pour out his spirit in your heart and empower you to live this way and forgive and cleanse the conscience forever. So of course, what's happening in 19 is God letting the children of Israel know that even if I make known to you every law and how you should live, you won't keep it. Not only does God need to descend on the mountain and dispense the word, God has to descend in the person of Christ and lay his own life down. He's got to reverse the curse himself. Where God came in a thick cloud to Israel in Exodus 19, Christ came in a body of flesh. Where God warned the people not to touch the mountain or break through lest they die, Jesus came in the body of flesh and lived amongst us, ate with us, drank with us, slept in tents near the disciples, touched people and brought them to life again. When the woman with the issue of blood, remember this, even touched the hem of Jesus' garment, she was made well. 
That's an inversion of Exodus 19, where if you touch the mountain, you'll die. This is the new covenant or the old covenant. And then Jesus, when he died and rose again, he comes back to Thomas and he says, Thomas says, I'll never believe unless I touch his hands and his side. And Jesus says, touch my hands and my side, Thomas. Of course, Thomas doesn't need to. He says, my Lord and my God. So whereas God came to Sinai to instruct about the worship and law, Jesus came on the Sermon on the Mount and he gave God's final word on worship. Where Jesus says in John chapter number four, there's this engagement that Jesus has with the woman at the well. She's a woman who's been engaged with sexual promiscuity with six other men. Jesus confronts her on this and her response is to kind of maybe trip Jesus up as a Jew. She would be a Samaritan and basically create an argument that might dispense with this conversation that's making her uncomfortable. And so she says, I see that you're a prophet. Should we worship on this mountain in Jerusalem or should we worship on that mountain where my father's worship? That's Mount Gerizim. It's a conversation about mountain worship, right? Jesus has a wonderful response that colors Exodus 19. And he says, daughter, there's coming a day that is here or soon and is now here where true worshipers will not worship on this mountain or that, but true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And truly I say to you, he is even now seeking those who might worship him in this way. In other words, Jesus is saying the locale of worship, since it's not only a distance issue, but a spiritual issue, is about to be completely fulfilled when he goes up to the Mount Calvary and dies, and he's going to end that locale worship, and it's going to be redirected to the hearts of people like you and me, and it's going to happen by faith. Now, this is key. It's not just Sunday school, hey, it's good to be able to repeat it. It's key because... Paul will go on to say it's the very truth that we have to be constantly reminded lest we try to be self-saviors every day. Paul would make the case without saying it. Augustine commentates and says, since our hearts are idle factories, that every day we have this proclivity to try and basically rebuild the high places, go back onto the mountain, make up the distance between us and God. We, We have this in our minds to think that somehow if we prayed more, if we read more, if we said more nice things to people and less mean things to people. If we didn't curse under our breath when someone cut us off, if we you know, listened to more Christian music and less Metallica, that that's how it's going to get us closer to God. And, and then we'll be right with God rather than what the gospel says, which is the law is given that we might know there's no way we're going to make up the gap. What we need is to be born all over again. And God will pour his spirit out upon us. And that ultimately our worship goes from obedience to the law first to worship of Christ through which he makes us obedient. You see, it goes to a person, not a mountain. Christianity's faith in an actual person, the God-man who truly lived, truly died, truly is alive again, not living in accordance with the rules that have been written out. Another way to put it would be this. We only have two options, and Paul lays these out in Romans. We can receive the gift of God in Christ by faith, or we can continue to try and solve the problem of sin's exile on our own. We can pursue a life of right standing with God through the works of the law or through the faith in the person of 
person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the great divide of humanity is how do you decide to deal with the exile? Paul doesn't really even try to reason with people that try to say there is no exile because we all intuitively know it. And so he says, until you can be honest with yourself, I don't even want to have a conversation with you. But once you're willing to say something's wrong, then he starts talking to you. There's only two options, really. And they manifest themselves with a number of different masks, but it's really self-salvation through your own technique or receiving a gift. That's it. Or it's either building the bridge to cover the divide with your own works or receiving the gift of the bridge of Christ's body by faith and walking across it. That's what faith is. John Piper said, how do you put faith in an architect of a bridge? You drive your family across it. How do you put faith in Christ? You walk across the bridge, right? By faith, we choose Christ. Okay, now last thing, and I only have a few minutes. This verse is one of the handful in Exodus that has direct cross-references to the New Testament. Like you read this one, you just read this one. It's just, it's obvious. And I want to finish with Hebrews chapter 12, because what happens here and what the writer of Hebrews says, they're not like, ooh, they kind of sound alike. They're exact, okay? And what's happening here in Hebrews 12 is a comparison of the old and new covenants. Now, hopefully you haven't been bored with what we talked about so far, but please perk your ears up on this last bit. Hebrews 12, and let's start in verse 18. The writer says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, remember this, darkness and gloom and tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. These are God's words from Exodus 19. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So the writer of Hebrews is saying the old covenant, there's a lot of mourning, there's a lot of fear. Now watch this. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in the festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I wish I could spend all the time in the world talking about all these connections, but very simply put, you have the mourning of the old covenant and you have the rejoicing in the new covenant. That's ultimately the big themes here. You know, one side you have, don't speak anymore, I tremble in fear, I stick my head in the sand. The other side is, seems like angels are dancing and rejoicing and tambourines and going off, we're having a feast. That's old and new covenant. But I want to hone in on the last line, which is that Christ's blood speaks a better word than that of Abel's blood. What is that word? Well, if you remember, the story of Cain and Abel is the very first murder that's recorded in the Bible after sin enters the world. And the writer of Hebrews wants to make mention of this and say that the old covenant harkens back to Abel's blood. God told Cain when he confronted him about Abel's death and and Cain told him, I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't know where he is. And God knows full well he killed Abel and buried him in the ground. He says to Cain, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So Abel's blood speaks of man's fallenness, man's guilt, a cry for justice from God against man for all of his evil. That's the word that Abel's blood cries. And it doesn't mean that Abel's unrighteous. That's righteous, true, and just. The blood of Abel, though, cries only for justice. 
And the writer of Hebrews says, Christ's blood speaks a better word. Well, what is that better word for you and me? Christ's blood speaks of man's redemption. The cry of forgiveness given out by Jesus on the cross, as he's shedding his blood, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The justice poured out on him, the forgiveness extended to you and me. That's the new covenant in his blood. Now, what should we do with it? If you have been feeling that sense of exile, maybe more acutely or more dull, it doesn't matter, you know it. The writer of Hebrews tells us how we ought to respond, and I want to leave this with you. Verse 25, he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if you reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Three things. Number one, don't refuse that which is offered. So Christ even now is is offering you, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, he's offering you to stop trying to climb the mountain and receive that which he has given. And he says, stop striving for that which you can't accomplish and receive by faith that which I've accomplished. That's the offer. Number two, be grateful because everything that can be shaken will be shaken, but what he has given you cannot be shaken. Notice he says that, There is coming one final shaking, and everything that man has built, whether with your eyes that you can see and hands can touch, or whether what you've built in your mind and your heart, these high places, they will be shaken and torn down. But for everyone who's received what Christ has built, it can't be shaken. It can't be taken away from you. It can't be robbed from you. And listen to me, even at your best efforts, you can't take it down. That's pretty good news, because I try to take my own hammer to it. And then finally, what what does this gratefulness lead to, this worship, reverence, and awe? Well, it leads to wholehearted worship, which is the call of the New Testament. The spiritual sacrifices that God calls us to, instead of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the spiritual sacrifices, is our whole life. Which means if you're wondering, how can I be obedient to God? It really just singles down to one thing, worship of Christ, faith in Jesus. And everything else begins to follow from that. And so I want to leave you with this. It's if we be exiled, and we are, if we sense that dullness or acutely, the answer is the same. And it's looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, fully with our whole heart, receiving that which he has given. I hope that you leave out of here this morning because we're going to get into the law next week, knowing you can't understand the law unless you know that the fulfillment of the law is in Christ and obedience to the law never comes but through him. That's good news, though, for us. And so I pray it encourages your heart. Let me pray for us. Father, much to be said 
But right now what I pray is for every heart and soul in the room that has been working hard to try to fix that which is broken within them in their own way, I pray this morning would be a great breath of fresh air that they might breathe in and remember to cease striving and trust you, Jesus. If it be relational discord, if it be trouble financially, if it be sin that continues to trip them up and hang them up, I pray they'd look to you, Jesus, and not to their own ability. Look to you, Jesus, because it's only in you that we might find our redemption. And so draw us back now, I pray, God, and as we sing, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouths be matched, and in so doing, bring you great glory.